lot of announcements and a lot of stuff to get through, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and compact a few things down um, this morning so that we can kind of honor our time here a little bit. So if you were here last week, you kind of caught the intro. If you weren't, I'm going to give you the short version. Um, we're on a little bit of a new teaching series, a new teaching track. We are right kind of three weeks in, in the middle of the season of Lent. And I know that we've got all different backgrounds and kind of histories, and so we have different understandings of the church calendar and, uh, and of ideas like Lent and things like that. But just to get everybody on the same page, Lent is it's a, it's a season of the church calendar, uh, which comes from an old English word meaning to lengthen. It kind of happens in the spring when the days are getting longer, and Lent is the season that is 40 days before Easter, not counting Sunday. So it's that season of, of 40 days, not counting Sundays, before Easter. It begins on Ash Wednesday, and really the whole intention of Lent is to push us towards the cross and the resurrection, to focus our hearts and our minds towards what Christ has done um, and the promise of the resurrection. And a lot of us have different understandings of Lent. We think that Lent means I've got to give things up, or that was kind of the, you know, I, I told you last week, you know, I give up chocolate and get skinny for Jesus on those 40 days or whatever, a little something for him, a little something for me, everybody gets happy, you know. But really in the Bible, there's no picture of that, that kind of thing. The whole idea is the, is the understanding in the church calendar that we're just preparing ourselves mentally and kind of spiritually for what's going to take place, what has taken place, reminding ourselves about the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so this season is right kind of where we're in the middle of. And we have just come off this really long kind of look at the book of Ruth. And we've explored that and spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. And I thought it was the perfect time for us to just take some weeks right in the middle of this season and focus on the person and the life of Jesus Christ. So starting last week, I began a five-week series that we're going to be looking at five truths about the death of Jesus. Now, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit and tell you that my whole intention here is to do something a little bit different, to actually talk a little bit deeper, a little bit more theologically about what transpired on the cross. Because here's what I believe. I believe that we can't truly worship what we don't understand. And most of us are okay with the resurrection of Christ. We're actually okay with the cross, but we don't want to spend too much time thinking about it because we don't really understand it. If we really think about the death and all that took place and what the God of the universe, the God that breathed life into our lungs, that hung on that tree for you, for me, for our sin, we really don't know where to place that categorically in our minds and even in our theology. Because the cross is a horrific instrument. It was an instrument designed for torturous death. It's the single most horrific tool, I think, ever devised by human hands. The whole purpose was to humiliate and slowly torture those that were strapped or affixed to it, right? That was the instrument. It was, its purpose was for those enemies of Rome or those criminals against the Roman Empire to be affixed, nailed, strapped to this thing, hung 8 to 15 feet up in the air outside of town, and to allow them to slowly suffocate to death, right? So that everybody who walked by would go, I don't want to do whatever that person did. It was a deterrent. It was a horrific tool of torture. And our entire way of life as followers of Christ is built on what transpired there and how God used that to victoriously bring about his plan of reconciliation and redemption to all humanity. But we don't know what to really do with the actual death of Christ and the cross and, and kind of how that frames our theology. We're happy to get to Easter and celebrate on, on, on Easter morning and sing those great resurrection songs and stand with Peter and John in the tomb and celebrate with Mary and weep and all that, but we don't know what to do with Friday. 
with a God that would, would step in my place. And so my entire mentality is to bring some clarity to the cross that would drive us to worship. Because the more we understand about who God is and what he did for us, the more our worship can be framed in authenticity. So five truths about the death of Jesus. It's where we're going. It's a little bit deeper than some of the other stuff we tackle, but I think it's important because it, it will frame us correctly for worship. So this morning, we're going to be in two places. We're going to be uh, just in two verses, but two different places. So for those of you that like to find those in advance and kind of know where it is, so you're not all thrown off, uh, we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. So 5, 21, and uh, 1 Peter 2, 24. And I'll kind of uh, get you there in just a second, but if you like to find those and have them, we're going to be looking at two verses, and we're going to be exploring the second truth about the death of Christ. And let's pray, we'll read those, and then I'll catch you a little bit up from last week, and we'll, we'll dive into this week's. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who calls us into relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that the truth is we don't fully understand what transpired. There's no way that we can grasp the depth and the breadth of your love and your grace. So Lord, I pray that as we tackle these incredibly important, I think, theological truths about the death of your son, that God, you would open our heart to allow us to see you more clearly. That that might be our simple prayer, that God, maybe I can see you more clearly, that you would, you would open us up to see you in that way. Take a moment in your own heart and just pray that God would would teach you something about him this morning, that he would open your heart to see him more clearly. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know them, even if you think it's a little bit odd, just be in the habit of praying for other people. Just whisper something for them. God, move in this person's life, anything. Just, just pray for someone. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place this morning. We thank you that your word is, is real, it is true, it is authoritative. And God, it is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Father, we thank you that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We believe that, we trust that. We ask you to enlighten our hearts and reveal truth to us this morning. In Jesus' risen name, amen. Two isolated verses, and I don't do this very often. Usually we do a lot of stuff in deep context, but, but it's going to feed into what we're talking about, and I'll explain a little bit more. But two isolated verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, all right? My favorite section in all of Scripture is 517 through 20. So, but, so we're going to read the tail end of that, 521, says this, For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now hang on to that. I'm going to give you these so you can think about them. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to jump over to 2.24. 1 Peter, just a few books down the road there. Chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. 
All right, so I want you to hang on to those, all right, because we're going to come back to them. But I want them to just be in your mind because they're very specific verses to the truth we're going to talk about this morning. Now, last week we started off with our first truth. The first truth was this. The death of Jesus was for his enemies. All right, so I'm not going to recap the whole thing, but they're building on each other. So I want you to hear the main principles here so that we can understand today's truth. The death of Jesus was for his enemies. All right, here's what we learned very quickly, that you and I are enemies of God. The Bible's very clear about this. Uh, Colossians 1 tells us that once we were alienated from God, we were enemies in our minds because of our sinful and evil behavior. That you and I are enemies of God. The sin that permeates through everything that we are, through our thoughts, that seeps through every pore in our body, sets us apart and against as enemies of holy, magnificent, perfect God. We are not just kind of a little bit uh, ugly or a little bit you know, sinful or a little bit about, we are a complete and total enemy of God. And we explored that and what the Bible says about that it's not just that God doesn't like sin, but that God abhors it, he hates it, all right? And that people that are living in sin, that have sin, which equates to every single one of us, are therefore enemies of God. We also learned that in this state, as enemies of God, we are powerless, this is all coming out of Romans 5, we learned this last week, powerless, ungodly, and utterly sinful. So we explored those things. So in my state as an enemy of God, I am powerless to change that. I can't do it on my own. I am ungodly, meaning simply I am the opposite of all that God is, right? In terms of my behavior, my actions, my thoughts. And I am an active, living, engaging sinner, right? That's what we learned. Now, the question that we're going to build on today is really, does that really mean for all of us? Like, I know that I know some people like that. I used to know this dude. He was just like that. And, uh, but is that really for me, right? Well, the Bible's very clear. It tells us, Romans 3, that all have sinned, every single one of us. First John 1 says this. It says that we all have sinned deep inside of us. And if we claim not to have sin, that God's truth can't be in us. We all have sinned, every single one of us. What makes it worse, the Bible tells us there's a penalty for that sin. We talked about the wrath of God last week, and I'm not going to get back into that. You can go listen to it. But the Bible tells us there's a penalty of that sin, and the sin is death, and therefore do the wrath and judgment of God, right? So we are enemies of God. We are ungodly. We are powerless. We are sinful. Every single one of us, the Bible tells us, is in that state, and in that state, we are due the penalty that is due for that sin, which is eternal separation from God, death, hell. Man, this church is awesome, right? I mean, I want to come back here. These guys are great. I mean, no one loves to hear this stuff, right? I mean, it's hard, right? And so we like to pretend it doesn't exist, that God is just a little bit disappointed in our sin, but not like he doesn't hate it. We treat sin like this. As long as I come back to church by the time I'm 30 with children, then God kind of forgives all, right? I mean, that's the way that works, The reality is it's not how it works. We are totally and utterly sinful enemies of God. But we talked last week about Jesus' death being for God's enemies. Second truth, the one we're getting into this week, is this. The death of Jesus, all right, is for your behalf. Because there's always a but in Scripture, right? That's the greatest word in all of Scripture. When, When God transitions from the reality of who we are to the greatness of who he is. So the death of Jesus was for his enemies, and the death of Jesus is on your behalf. Now let's get into these two verses, because there's three things I want you to see. I'm going to do this really quickly. Three things I want you to see here about this truth, all right? The first is that there was a magnificent exchange that took place. So uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, For God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the magnificent exchange. Jesus lived a perfect and totally sinless life. In every act in his life on earth and even in his death, he was about the glory of God perfectly. God made him who had no sin. Jesus was perfect, flawless in his life and in his death. We just heard and learned last week that we are the opposite of that. In our lives, we are enemies of God, ungodly, powerless, and sinful. But there's a magnificent exchange that took place. Before the creation of the world, God had ordered this exchange that Jesus, this perfect, sinless Jesus, would take our sin and exchange our sin for his righteousness. So it says, for he, Jesus, who had no sin, literally became sin. Jesus didn't become a sinner. He became sin for us. And we became the righteousness of God. This is the incredible exchange. It's a magnificent exchange. It's an exchange that you could do nothing about, but that God made for you. Here's the reality. That exchange did not make you because now you're morally righteous. That exchange did not make Jesus a moral sinner. It just exchanged the reality of our situations. That Jesus becomes sin, everything that you are and had and will be, and he takes it on himself. And he makes us into his righteousness, the very righteousness that Jesus lived with his life. It's an incredible exchange, an undeserved exchange. And I want you to understand that because a lot of times we think, right, that Jesus just sort of died for our sins. The reality is what God did was he exchanged our very lives. That Jesus not only, like, took our sin, but he bore all of it. Now, inside that miraculous kind of divine, magnificent exchange is this picture that comes out of 1 Peter, right? Inside that exchange, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Inside that magnificent exchange, all right, is a divine substitution. Now, I know that that may sound a little wordy, but I want you to understand this. Because the reality of what scripture teaches is that you are due the penalty of your sin and so am I. We are due the penalty of our sin. And the penalty of our sin is death. Eternal separation from God. The wages of our sin is death. It's what we're due. But not only did God exchange that, inside that exchange, Jesus bore our sin. That means he literally took it. That word means that he heaped it upon himself. Everything that you did, all those awful things that you've imagined that you were a part of, that you did when you were whenever, that you're doing right now, he bore and he substituted himself for you. It means he took your place. The reality is that all, we are, are duly right set up to die for our sin. But Jesus exchanged through God's divine providence, exchanged and substituted his life for ours. And there was nothing that you did to deserve it. Theologically, this is an incredible thing that's happening. Because God is just and holy, and there is a legal ramification that comes about for the nature of sin. And yet God, in his divine, amazing plan, had a magnificent exchange by which you get the righteousness of God, and Jesus gets your sin. And he bears it and substitutes his life for what you're due. Why? Because you did nothing but because God is extravagant and amazing and full of grace. So we've got this magnificent exchange. 
that's kind of steeped in this divine substitution. What we see in the last part of that verse is this idea is that Jesus died once for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. A lot of times we think that Jesus died for our sins past and that we have to keep making sacrifices for the things that we've done and that we're going to do in the future. The reality is, is that this act that took place, the death of Jesus, was once for all of the sins that you've done, you are doing now, and you will ever commit. This is incredible news. All right? Because it doesn't mean that we have to keep earning God's merit and God's favor. It doesn't mean we have to keep crawling back every time saying, God, please do this for me. The act of Christ's death on the cross was an incredible exchange substitution that was good then and is good now and good will be forever. It's the promise. It was on your behalf. You deserved to die for your sin. I did too. But Jesus exchanged his life for mine. I get God's glory and Jesus gets my sin because he substituted himself for me. Now for a lot of us sitting here, we're going, I mean, that's, that's wordy, man. The truth is it is. It's deeply theological. What we're talking about here is an incredibly important theological concept called penal substitutionary atonement. But if I let off with that, nobody would have cared. But I want to tell you something. It's incredibly important. Because a lot of times we think that what Jesus did was just sort of this act that covers everybody. The truth is, is that it was for you. He substituted his life for yours. The theological implications of what took place on that cross are, are beyond understanding. But when we truly think about them, it should push us to worship. I mean, we are singing to a God who isn't just kind of wrapped in that cultural picture of love and everybody holds hands and God is love and all these things. But we are singing to a God who took our death penalty away. Who took the due kind of process of my sin, eternal separation from him, forever and eternity for always. The Bible calls it hell. And he gave me the righteousness of God. And he took my garbage my junk, those horrific things that I've thought and done, and they became his. And for no reason, I get clothed in the righteousness of God? Are you kidding? That he substituted for me that I should be paying the penalty for my sin. Yet Jesus substituted his life for me forever. That when I surrender my heart to Christ, and I trust in what he did and that God is who he says he is and that he was raised from the dead. That that has purchased me from death to life. It's incredibly important. Because we get to Easter and we just think, oh yeah, Easter's all about the resurrection all that. But reality is we truly understand what Christ did for us. And it never moves us to tears. We should ask ourselves, what do we truly understand about the cross? About our own sinfulness? About our own nature? The death of Jesus was for his enemies. You are an enemy of God in your sin. Apart from Christ, you are an enemy. You are powerless, you are ungodly, and you are an active sinner. And I am too. It's for all of us, and there's a penalty for that sin. God's wrath comes about in spiritual death. Eternal separation from him. But in the middle of all that, there was this magnificent exchange that God, from the beginning of time, ordered and created this magnificent exchange that was rooted in divine substitution. 
once for everything you've done, are doing now, and will do. And you know where that should push us? It should push us to worship. Everything that we see in Scripture should drive us to worship. For God made him, Jesus, who had zero sin, no sin, to become sin for me, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. I mean, if that verse is not breathtaking, you're not hearing it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for me. He became my sin so that in him I might know and have and be, become God's glory. These first truth truths are a setup. They're a setup to help us understand exactly what took place. Next week we begin to shift a little bit and things are going to get a little bit more attractive as we talk about the third truth, which is the death of Jesus defines love. And not that cultural picture of love that we see where we hold hands and sing we are the world, but a picture of love that changes everything and that calls us to live differently and will radically turn your life upside down. As you think about these stories and as you place your life in this trajectory towards Easter, what does the cross really mean? Have you ever really understood that this brutal instrument of death and torture by which the God of the universe shed his blood was for you and you did nothing to deserve it? That he substituted his life for yours. He took on your sin, which he did not deserve. And you get clothed in his righteousness, which you don't deserve. That the life of Christ was substituted for yours. And we are a church, a people that could care less. Church is a habit. It's a habitual activity. And if we're tired, we miss it. We very seldomly spend time on our word. If I were to put every, put, kind of push everybody towards it, the truth is that very few of us are moved to life change by these truths. It's not an indictment on you, it's an indictment on the church and me and everybody in total because we don't approach this stuff with proper understanding. Instead, it's just something that I've always been raised with. And it breaks my heart that I think that. As we begin to think about our approach towards Easter, I pray that the cross and then what took place would shatter us, that it would change us, that I would not be able to be the same. It would have forever altered the way that I think and the way that I worship. The death of Jesus was for his enemies, and it was on your behalf. Let's pray.